You're about to listen to episode six of What Are You Making Me Watch, in which we discuss episode six of Band of Brothers, Bastogne. There will be spoilers ahead. You have been warned. Hello and welcome to episode six of What Are You Making Me Watch, in which we're going to be watching episode six of uh, Band of Brothers, Bastogne. Are those two numbers ever going to be different? I like the way we repeat it all the time. <laughs> well, only if something's gone really wrong. Wouldn't it? Yeah. Welcome to episode seven, when we talk about episode ten. <laughs> episode ten. I opened the wrong spreadsheet or something. Uh-huh. Yes. Okay, so episode six. Well, we're going to be talking winter is coming for winters, mm. isn't it? For all of them. Worse Christmas than Walford. <laughs> <laughs> it's basically shite Christmas, isn't it? It's, it is uh, shite is, Christmas. Yeah, is what happens this week. It's a little bit Narnia as well, yeah. except n- nobody gets any Turkish delight or indeed any basic medical supplies. We've <laughs> got some guests. 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 Come guests. on now. We're really heavy on the history in this episode. Got some stuff from James Holland. And I'm also talking to the historian Martin King who wrote a book and was involved in the production of a documentary about one of the female characters in this. In fact, not a character, real person, real person. I got, because Woman Watch is going into overdrive. This it week, really is. It? Three weeks yeah. in a row, Woman Watch. It's been very exciting. Excellent. Well, let's do it. So, episode six, Bastogne. It's freezing cold and the cupboards are bare, like going to Iceland on Christmas Eve. And everyone is having to pay a terrible price for seemingly small mistakes. Joe Toy takes his boots off for a second and winds up getting trench foot. Babe gets to know a young replacement and then has to watch him die horribly. And Harry Welsh's attempt to feel not ball-shakingly cold for 30 seconds lands him in hospital with a hole in his leg. And, despite Dick Winter's chippy, we're paratroopers, we're supposed to be surrounded, last week... Easy Company are not just surrounded, they're totally cut off. What a way to spend Jesus' birthday, eh? <laughs> oh my God, Bastogne, a.k.a. shite Christmas. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's pretty hellish, isn't it? So Paul, you finally got your wish. An episode that entirely focuses around one character, Eugene Doc Rowe. Happy with that? Yeah, very happy. And, and he's great as well. Eugene. Obviously, I don't know the Mr. Shane Taylor. <laughs> Mr. Shane Taylor. That's the, that's the sort of expertise I look to you for. But yeah, he's terrific. He's terrific in it. And um, I do think that it, it does benefit from that, from having a, a focus, from following that, that character through the episode. And the, the fact he's a medic as well. Feels quite timely, doesn't it? Med- medics and other people on the front line working without access to basic supplies. Can you imagine such a thing? Uh. You know? Yeah, yeah, quite. Well, yeah. it's interesting because we haven't talked about them much, but the real men of Easy Company, who we see at the start of every episode, say some interesting things in this one. One of them, one of them, I know who he is, you don't, says, we had confidence that our higher-ups yes. would get us what we needed. And then you literally cut to row scavenging for bandages, scavenging for yeah. morphine. It's ridiculous. Which is interesting in that it maybe speaks to that kind of um, mindset they had of having faith mm. in 
the great American projects, and in their military command. I did think when I was watching that, could you imagine if that had been me and you in that situation? <laughs> We'd have been like, well, of course there are no fucking bandages and winter coats. What do you expect from this management? Yeah, exactly that, exactly <laughs> yeah. that. Even through all the hell they've been through, they kind of keep that, that faith, don't they, in, the, in their command and that they're doing the right yeah. thing. The other thing that that somebody says in this uh, uh, in the opening section is is I think it's really telling because it kind of then starts to speak to the long term impact that the war has had on them. And he says, even today on a really cold night, and my wife will tell you, the first thing I say is, I'm glad I'm not in Bastogne. So literally, yeah, exactly. it is with them forever. I think what happened in the war is with them forever. I, but I feel particularly. And that's this episode and next episode. What happens to them when they are in the woods of Foy is life-changing. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. And they're either going to go two ways with that, aren't they? They're either going to uh, talk about it for the rest of their lives or, or never speak yeah, of it again. Exactly that, yeah. yeah. Ro is, he is a really good character. But it, it's interesting because actually, terrible and awful a time that they are having... The medics on the Western Front actually had an easier time than the medics on the Eastern Front, which was the Russian medics, and Mm. the medics in the Pacific. Because, obviously, the Geneva Convention says you're not allowed to shoot a medic. Right. But, equally, that medics aren't allowed to be armed. Uh, Or, if they're armed, they're not allowed to shoot their weapon. The minute they shoot their weapon, they then become fair game. Because they are part of the war. And the Germans did appear to respect that on the Western Front. They didn't respect it on the Eastern Front. Apparently the Russian medics had a terrible time. And the Japanese did not respect it at all. And apparently actively targeted medics during the Second World War. Interesting you mention the Eastern Front. Because, as you know, not not being a a military historian to rival James Mm. Holland, I I think I was kind of shamefully ignorant of the whole... Battle of the Bulge, and I'd, I'd never really considered the idea of freezing conditions and snow on the Western Front like that. I think it's something I tend to associate with, you know, siege of Stalingrad yeah. or something. You know, but yeah, the woods around Bastogne—it's it's it's like a really shit Narnia, yeah. basically, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it, lo- it looks absolutely beautiful. I don't know if they filmed it in real snow or just did a very good job with the fake stuff, but it looks actually quite magical if it wasn't for all the death and blood and gangrene and trench foot yeah um, and, and the bit where winters is cracking the ice to shave and you think just grow a beard mate <laughs> <laughs> that says something about his character though doesn't it that even in that circumstance he will crack ice to to keep clean shaving um, yeah that scene the very first scene in it there's there's loads going on there is just loads and loads of stuff going on um, like you yeah. say, it has, starts with that Narnia, that star of Rome yeah. just coming across the, the dead bodies because he's, he's got lost. And then Sink turns up with a typical get it done attitude, like yeah. where they've got the line is so thin. But there's a brilliant moment in that where uh, Nixon wakes up and like lifts up his, <laughs> comes up like into the conversation. And the podcast that we will never mention that was launched on the same day as us. They got to go on Good Morning Joe, which is an American uh, breakfast TV show, to talk about it. And they had Ron Livingstone on. And he looked exactly the same at seven o'clock in the morning <laughs> as he did when he woke up in Bastogne 20 years ago. He just had that, what the fuck's going on? Why am I up so early? Look on his face. 
It was rather brilliant. Oh, how do we get on Good Morning Joe? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, you have to do BBC Radio Cambridgeshire. And yeah, winter's obviously very appropriately named this yeah. week. Um, yeah. I was, going to, I was going to make a Dick Winters joke, but I, I thought I'd rise above it. I mentioned earlier, I mean, obviously we talked about this when we were talking about Nixon drinking. I always think it's really interesting when you add normal life onto top of things like, like this. So, for example, Babe has what looks like a chest infection, which is just on top of everything else that he's got going. But I think the most amusing plot line, if I can say that there's an amusing plot line in the middle of all of this, is that Bill Garnier is pissing needles. It actually involves one of the funniest interactions that I think exists in Band of Brothers when uh, Roe tells him to drink. Because he's, he's got to be an expert in everything, this poor guy. Tells him yeah. that he should drink water. And Garnier says, water? It's pissing the hers. <laughs> yeah. But something occurred to me for the first time when I was watching this, and I think this might be like my my fifth watch of this, is that... I previously didn't really think much about why Bill Garnier was pissing needles and I just assumed he probably had a, a, some sort of infection because of the circumstances. But last episode, he asked if anybody knew where Lulu's was. Uh, now that sounds like a knocking shop if ever I've heard yes. one. So I think Bill actually might have the clap on top oh of gosh. everything else that he's having to put up with at the moment. He's, he's paying the price for a little trip to Lulu's. Yeah. Yes. Oh yeah. And I've not noticed yeah. that before. So, yeah, there is a lot going on. Yeah. Just going back to the military top brass, not, not giving them what they need. You know, they don't have equipment, they don't have the ammo, they don't have basic supplies. And then at the end, that guy comes to deliver the message from the general. Is it from Patton? Yes. He goes, I got a message for y'all from the general like that. And um, so while they're all there, freezing to death, like shot up to shit and traumatised and missing basic weapons and supplies, uh, this general tells them in this letter, quote, that uh, being privileged to take part in the gallant feat of arms, we are truly making for ourselves a Merry Christmas. Mm. And you think, seriously, that's all you got me for Christmas, a letter full of bullshit. Yeah. Like not even some <laughs> gift, not even some gift wrapped ammo. Not even um, socks, which is normally what people don't want for Christmas. If, if there's ever a time you wanted socks, <laughs> this is it, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and I just thought, oh God, we we are truly making for ourselves a merry Christmas. I thought I've seen merrier Christmases in Walford. <laughs> yeah. And then and then Borrow Book gets dumped on top of everything else. Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. So, that's that's yeah. a really interesting sort of dynamic, isn't it? Because it immediately seems like just the most terrible, terrible thing you could do. But equally, and I say that as someone whose grandmother got married and then didn't see her husband for six years, it was a lot of pressure on women at home at a time when pressure from the outside world, and by at a time, I mean, A, their age they were likely at, but B, the age they lived in, yeah. was, you know, get married, have a baby. And so to, to to waste, I know this is a horrible way to say it, but to waste like good years of your life for somebody who may not return was a big decision, even though it's clearly horrible to dump someone on the worst Christmas that anybody has ever had, ever. But then who she who was she going to, you know, make babies with instead? She was some guy at home with fallen arches. <laughs> some four, four W. <laughs> yeah. That was 4F, isn't it? Not 4W. 4F. 
Well, if her children have flat feet, she's only got herself to blame, hasn't she? <laughs> Quite. Also, we had an exit for friend of the show, Ben Kaplan, this week. Gone. Did you notice that? No. no. <laughs> Smokey was shot while loading up his his machine gun. And poor bugger not only ended up having to go to the aid station, possibly paralysed, but also when he got there, the aid station was absolutely horrific. Really brutal, wasn't it? Yeah. Just arteries spurting all over the place. Just, yeah. It more, looked more like um, a morgue. Yes. Yeah, it? particularly yeah. with the, the the basement feel about yeah. it. Yeah. 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 Definitely. So a friend of the show, Ben, that's it. Mm, that's it. For him. That's the thanks he gets for being a friend of, friend of the show. <laughs> uh, it's worth <laughs> mentioning. So obviously, Smokey Gordon did survive the war. I didn't bring him up with Ben Kaplan because um, he did die before Band of Brothers. So it, okay, Ben Kaplan right. didn't get to meet him. Yeah. But worth mentioning also that he was not, in fact, paralysed. He did regain use of his... Legs, although apparently lived in constant pain, which is the hangover of, of yeah, of war for a whole generation yeah. of men. Yeah, God, that's awful. That was pretty um, traumatic, that whole kind of, well, many, many traumatic sequences. But yeah, that whole hospital stroke mortuary kind of, yeah, I mean, that is, that is just hell bubbling out of the earth, isn't it? Mm. Especially for an episode that starts... Quite low key. It's almost a kind of lull in the proceeding at the start, and we're, you know, because the snow makes things a little bit hushed as well, maybe, and people are having some conversations. And I thought, oh, we're kind of having a slight pause in the action, and then suddenly it just all, you know, goes to hell very quickly. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about physical closeness in this, because, well, let's start with Babe. So Babe has a horrible time in this episode, just a horrible time. He commits the cardinal sin of actually caring about a replacement Um, and then attempts valiantly to save him and just keeps getting beaten back by those bullets. In fact, there's a bit where Dexter Fletcher says, we tried, Babe tried to get to him and we just couldn't get to him. And it affects him quite badly and it's one of the first times we've actually got to see someone have the time almost to ruminate on the loss Mm. of a specific person because like you say we everything's so quick and everything moves Mm. on so quickly and Eugene Rowe is looking for him and finds him in a foxhole with and with the other medic who is like proper got him in a big cuddle Mm. and they are all really physically close and I as a as a bloke I thought I might ask you, is that that's that's pretty rare that men are ever that physically close together, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose it must be. Yeah. I mean, I'm guessing that in a war situation, it's a lot more common. There's a lot. There must be a lot of physical manhandling of each other in in a, you know, supportive kind of way. And I'd imagine that especially in a place like that, in those conditions, just just cuddle up for warmth. Yeah. Well, you would, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's almost seemingly in contrast to the macho idea that is sold of war, if you know yeah. what I mean. Yes. You know, they're all in those foxholes as well. Yeah. They're so, t- you know, physically it's uh, quite con- constricted. 
But you know, if you're not going to bunch up, get a bit of body heat off your uh, off your fellow soldier, then um, what's wrong with you? Mm. I mean, the bonding experience from all angles is just obviously immense, isn't it? It's it's you know going through a situation like that together. That is a lifelong bond. I'm guessing of the type which our generation could just never hope to comprehend. Yeah, yeah, agreed. I actually talked to James Holland about that. Maybe I should put that in here. I have one more question for you, James. You have a new book coming out, Brothers in Arms. Now, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that, but if you could also tell us maybe you look at something like Band of Brothers, it sort of poses the question of who do I feel about like they feel about each other? Yeah. Is there anything on Civvy Street that is in any way equivalent to how they felt about each other? Gosh, I don't know. You know, maybe you, if you talk to some of the medical staff at a particular hospital, yeah. I, I imagine they felt a bit like a sort of band of brothers and sisters. Um, you know, particularly yeah. last year, March last year, at the beginning of the lockdown and the beginning of the pandemic, you know, when, when, when no one knew what was to come and no one knew how to deal with this disease. That must have been pretty frightening. And I, and I think, you know, camaraderie and intense camaraderie forged through kind of shared experience, I think, would have been pretty strong. And I'm sure people would have felt something something similar. I mean, the Brothers in Arms book came about after a conversation with John Orloff, who was screenwriter of two of the episodes of Band of Brothers. And he's a friend. And he's currently been writing uh, Masters of the Air, which is uh, the new Spielberg Hanks miniseries about the 100th bomb group in the 8th Air Force. They've done paratroopers in Europe. They've done the Pacific. And now they're doing the air war. And it promises to be fantastic. But John just got me thinking about it and um, got me thinking about the original Band of Brothers book. And it just, and it's, and it is quite dated now, that, that original's book. Originally written in 1992 and, and kind of so really trailblazing. I mean, no one had written a book like that at all. So, you know, it absolutely deserves its place on the kind of pedestal of, of game changing books about the Second World War, I think. Um, but it is quite dated, you know, and there's quite a lot of inaccuracies and all sorts of stuff. And it just occurred to me that there was a there was a book to be done which sort of went went another level beyond what Band of Brothers the book does, which is more inspired by the TV series rather than the, the original book, I suppose. Um, and I'd had a lot to do with the Sherwood Rangers, who were um, an armoured unit, British armoured unit, who started off just sort of absolutely hopeless in the Second World War. You know, they were a yeomanry regiment, so they were kind of effectively TA, you know, you know, National Guard or Territorial Army, whatever you want to call it part-time soldiers, went off to Palestine with their horses, then got dismounted, you know, just just really old school, all sort of, you know, hunting, shooting, fishing types, uh, and then evolved over the course of the next few years. Eventually mechanised, saw action at the Battle of Alam Halfa in end of August 1942, then Alamein, went all the way through the rest of the North African campaign. By the end of the North African campaign in May 1943, they're really seriously good because they've got lots of different officers have come in now. The old kind of sort of original pre-war officers in the regiment have completely changed, and they, there's a sort of ambition there. They're, they're amateurs in so much that they're, they're people who wouldn't have been in uniform had it not been for the Second World War. But they're, they're smart, clever people who think outside the box and realise that, that the only way they're going to get through this is to become really, really good. And they are really, really good, which is one of the reasons they become one of the spearheaders for D-Day. Because they're an independent armour brigade, their job is to work with the infantry. Uh, and they're part of the sort of the slogging match, the grinding battle. They're not the kind of sort of glory boys of the guards armoured who are kind of sort of charging through, exploiting the gaps that have been made. These are the guys who've got to grind down the enemy. So as a result of that, because most of the war in Northwest Africa, uh, Northwest Europe, apart from that narrow window at the end of the, the Normandy campaign, is about the grinding attritional mm-hmm. battle. They're in action the whole time. So by the end of the war, 
They are the single unit in the British Army with more battle honours than any other. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. You know, there are infantry regiments with more battle honours, but they've got multiple battalions mm. within that regiment. But as a single unit, there is no one to touch them. And they have 18 battle honours just from D-Day to V-Day. And I've had all sorts of associations with that particular regiment. I know, you know, the son of the um, commanding officer for much of the time of that last period of the war, 11 months of war, is a great mate of mine. And, you know, he's introduced me to lots of other family members within the regiment and stuff. So I had all these diaries and letters and, and they're just a remarkable bunch of people, you know, who, who just somehow managed to sort of keep their humanity despite this sort of appalling mm. violence. What I really wanted to do was try and convey what it was like to be in a tank in northwest Europe in the last 11 months of war. So the, it covers the exactly the same period as, as Band of Brothers, D-Day to the end of the war. And it was absolutely brutal. I mean, it, it's just horrific. Statistically, you had if you were in a tank, you had no chance of getting through. On well, that was going to be my question, because in some ways you think that, that, that a tank offers you this is my brain that a tank would offer you some sort of you know protection but in many ways it's a bigger object to aim at than just yourself so i mean how safe were you in a tank well the truth is not very safe at all i mean there there is not a single tank that goes into action between d-day and um and v-day that that doesn't get hit at some point i mean at some point So, so whether you get out completely unscathed slightly wounded very badly wounded, with your legs shot off, killed or incinerated, is really just a matter of chance. Now, obviously, the more experienced you are, there are certain things you can do. But, but you know, the more experience you get, at the same time, your 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 tank of courage is starting to get, mm. is to run a little bit low. And combat fatigue starts to come in, which also then affects your judgment. So you might know all the tricks of trade, but 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 are you still functioning properly? And, and the fatigue levels, particularly of the officers, is just absolutely out of this world i mean if you think about it you know as a as a squadron commander you've got these troops of four tanks and you've got to listen to your own tank on the intercom you've got to listen to the b net radio which is your link to the rest of the squadron you've got to listen to the a net which is the the the, the inter-squadron regimental net and in your ability to liaise with the infantry you've got to keep a watch about you all the time because you don't know where the enemy are it's not like they're kind of putting flags up and going i'm over <laughs> here chaps i mean so you've got to watch the whole time every decision you make might have potentially fatal consequences for you and your and your men you know and you might be 23 yeah i mean you know i don't know what you were like with 23 hannah but but you know when i was 23 what a useless feckless individual oh, i yeah. was i mean you know, the, I, <laughs> I could i could command four other men in a tank let alone a hundred you know best part of a hundred men in a squadron is just ludicrous uh, and of course you know in summer you're you're an action from sort of 4 30 in the morning till you know 11 o'clock at night you're, you're you're lucky if you're getting three hours sleep you're having to stand up the whole time you've also got to put your head above the above the parapet effectively you've got to have your head and shoulders out of the turret because otherwise you can't really see so you know you're also in the most in the most dangerous position the stress and strain must have been enormous and then in winter you've got all the problems of cold and mm. wet and you know, not being able to see properly and you know a whole host of other kind of you know privations and difficulties and and it's just relentlessness it just goes on and yeah. on and on and on and i mean you know you were talking about how difficult it was was being being shut away for four months you know these guys are at it for 11 it's, months it's incredible just of seeing it's incredible how do you do that I think as well, what's, what's what Band of Brothers sort of nails, you know, sometimes you've got problems that aren't about the war. 
like 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 Bill Garnier is talking about piss and yeah. needles, and you just think, oh, that poor sod. On top of everything else, I mean, Nixon is yeah. is is in points of alcohol withdrawal at points as well. I mean, there's a lot of things yeah. going on in your life that aren't necessarily part of the war, and it just adds to the just the stress of it, the stress of thinking about home or Absolutely. missing home and all of that that stuff on top. Well, I have this, uh, this guy whose letters are, are just amazing, you know, and he writes in sort of, you know, July 1944, he writes to his wife and he says, says, you know, do you realise, you know, we got married in, um, you know, five years ago and I haven't seen you for more than a couple of months mm. since then. Same as my grandparents. My grandparents married just before the war and then she didn't see him for six years. Yeah. Wow. It, it's yeah. incredible. I mean, how do you deal with that? I mean, it sounds like a perfect marriage to me, but um, I don't know how she, she coped with that. Or I don't know how he coped with it. Briefly going back to Babe, I do want to say how absolutely brilliant Robin Lang is in this episode. But Robin Lang and Shane Taylor are both amazingly good in this episode. I mean, everyone is good in Band of Brothers. Yeah. And worth pointing out, Robin Lang is Scottish. Wow. Shane Taylor's from Brighton. Blimey. Yeah. Yeah. Just amazing, isn't it? Yeah. So many British actors. But then I do wonder if that's because we don't understand the vagaries of American accent as well. Because it's interesting that all the British actors seem, from our British ears, to be brilliant at American accents. And all the Americans are terrible at doing Brits. I wonder if it, I wonder if they see it the other way around. Who knows? Well, I think it's something to do, and I did briefly talk about this with Matthew Leach, didn't I? There's something to do with the fact that we understand that despite the fact that when most people do an American accent, what they go for is California, mm, yeah. that actually there is a huge diversity of accent in America, whereas I don't think Americans realise that you and I sound different from each other. I don't think they realise... I mean, I come from that great swell in the middle that I would consider accentless, even though you probably wouldn't agree with that. You are from the North, but probably don't sound as Leeds as you did when I first met you. It's probably started to drift off, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. I think Americans think there are basically three British accents. Downton Abbey, Michael Caine, (laughs) and the Beatles. And that's it. Yeah. Whereas I think we are aware that there is New York and there's <laughs> yeah there's, there's uh, Carolina there's, or there's there's whatever yeah. um, and there's that Minnesota thing where they all sound vaguely sort of German oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> yeah I've got a very long story about South Dakota and a series <laughs> okay. of directions that somebody gave in one of those accents but it's oh, way yeah. too long for this. Uh, for this podcast. Save it for the Fargo podcast. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But obviously, Eugene Rowe is a Cajun. Uh, do you know who James Carville is? Another name. He's an American political commentator. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, he was in the film The War Room. It's about basically how he and George Stephanopoulos got Clinton elected. And James Carville yes. is known as the Raging Cajun. Um, right. That's his nickname. And uh, I was trying to think of what would work for Doc Rowe. And I was thinking, you know, maybe the assuaging Cajun. <laughs> oh, but, yeah. but technically like the best one would be the bandaging Cajun. But that, <laughs> bandaging. that one doesn't actually work, does it? If, well, because he hasn't got any bandages. No. <laughs> but if he did, he would be the bandaging Cajun. He would absolutely. be. Speaking of people called Eugene, sorry, this is a slight Radio 2 link, but... The other day, I suddenly was moved to look up, is that really the Gene Kelly who's exec produced this show? So I looked it up, and it isn't. 
It's uh, a guy called Eugene Kelly, who's also produced uh, Boardwalk Empire in the Pacific. Mm. And so, you know, great collaboration. So obviously a very distinguished high achiever in his own right. But I did think, what sort of guy in that industry goes, you know what, I'm going to shorten my name to Gene. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do he not at least check IMDb first? Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's a bit like, remember when Tony Blair used to have a speechwriter called... Uh, uh, Philip Collins. It would be like him going, you know what, I'm going to call myself Phil. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, no no singing in the rain connections. Although sadly. Steve McQueen mm. never thought oh. to change his name, did he? So whenever I say Steve McQueen, I always have to then say, explain which Steve McQueen I'm talking about. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? But I wonder if that's a transatlantic thing, because you've also got the Chris Evans yes. uh, thing as well, haven't you? But I'm, I'm fairly sure that Eugene Kelly uh, must have heard of Gene Kelly. Anyway, My guess would he's, be. Just, he's done all right. Go as far as to say he's America's second most successful Gene Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> so well done. <laughs> well, I mean, it depends what, the way you look at it. I, mean, I yeah. would say, from my point of view, probably the most successful Gene Kelly. But there you go. Well, you haven't, we haven't seen him tap dance, have we? So no. who knows? <laughs> who yeah. knows? <laughs> yeah. Talking of who is great in this, and um, we talked about yeah. him way back in episode two. Uh, Kurt Acevedo as Joe Toy is just—I love him. I love his normalness and his—he uh, does say things in a kind of like flat, sort of low-key voice. He does so much with one word. He really does. There's yeah. a bit where Rose says to him, "Are you missing something?" And he says, "Home." <laughs> yeah, and the guy doesn't even have any shoes and then he asks him what size he is and he says size 9 just like everybody else <laughs> yeah, there's I like a that. real weariness in it but there's a real stoicism in it as well oh. I think he's terrific we will talk about him more next week he's almost like a very kind of restrained sort of Greek chorus isn't he he's just almost offering a little meta commentary yeah. on the whole thing he just pops up and he's like Oh, yeah, Yeah. I think it's great, yeah. 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 Now, I haven't got a quiz for you this week, but you do have a regular spot, which is Women Watch. So, yes, lots of women this week, Paul. Actual women, yes, with uh, actual lines. Yeah. Women who speak. Yeah. Obviously, the Belgian nurse, Renée, played by Lucy... I don't know how to pronounce it. I think Lucy Jian. So that's the most significant female role in the show so far. And I would hesitate to call it a romantic subplot because I think that's cheap, isn't it? That cheapens it. Yeah. But it's a, it's a connection, isn't it? It's, it's a meeting a, of minds, a, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think with Roe, what he's done is he's met someone who actually understands that he is going through something different than everybody else is going through. Yes. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And then, spoiler alert, she appears to have died in the bombing raid. And She did die it, in real life. She is a real nurse and she did die in yeah. real life. Yeah. And that's really sad. And he uses her headscarf to bind the other guy's babe. wound. I thought it was a, yeah, babe. Yeah, babe. He calls him babe. He, uh, yeah, which is rather lovely kind of uh, symbolic moment. Yeah. 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 That's what she would have wanted. Very touching. Well, what she would have wanted was for her town not to be bombed to shit and her die yeah, in the church. But not to die. I think second yeah. after that would be that uh, that he didn't that anything in any way she could be useful. She would be useful. Yeah. 
And, and, and it kind of nicely subverts that Florence Nightingale angel cl- cliche because he's kind of going, you've got a gift of healing. Yeah. And she says, I don't want to touch anybody ever again. Yeah. Because, um, you know, she's uh, just because she's a woman doesn't mean she's an angel, does it? I think it also, yeah, <laughs> quite. And I think it also subverts that kind of Lady Macbeth thing of, you know, of Lady Macbeth can't get the blood off her hands and she doesn't oh, yes. even realise that there is blood on her hands now because it's That's so... Right, yeah. I mean, literal blood on her hands, not sort of metaphorical, but, yeah, because yes. it's become oh, so commonplace, yeah. 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 God, yeah. But very, no, it's very, very touchingly done and, and very beautifully played. Yeah, agreed. But, yeah, the town of Bastogne, absolute carnage. Have you ever been to one of those towns up in the sort of north of France or Belgium? at all that that were knocked about I, in the second world war well i have but i don't recall going anywhere that's that still bore the scars of it right i've been to quite a lot of uh, northern france i went to dunkirk because i was going to with my aunt who is an uh she's not an american but she lives there now and we were going to bruges mm. And when we arrived at Dunkirk, she was like, is this Dunkirk? It looks like a new town. I was like, what kind of is? It kind of is because, like, it just got absolutely smashed to shit. But that's the same with Dresden. I mean, if you've been to Dresden, Dresden looks like Milton Keynes because they had to start again. So, yes, as promised, Women's Corner is surprisingly full this week. You'll probably have noticed that Renee wasn't the only nurse in this episode. There was also a nurse called Anna. I'll be honest, I kind of assumed she was just a cipher for nurses. Someone who didn't, though, was the historian and writer Martin King, and he embarked on a small mission to find out who she was. Turns out she was a nurse called Augusta Shiwi, and Martin ended up writing a book about her called Searching for Augusta, which is available in all good bookshops. He was also part of the team behind an Emmy award-winning documentary, also called Searching for Augusta. That's available on Amazon, dependent on where you live and or whether you use VPN. Martin was nice enough to get on the phone with me to tell me a bit more. He lives in Belgium, so when he refers to this country, that's where he's talking about. Can I start by asking you, Martin, what was it about Augusta Shiwi that made you want to go and hunt out more information? Because you are the person who basically uncovered her story, aren't you? Yeah, basically, well, because she's black and because I know this country has some endemic racist problems. But it's it's that kind of structured racism which isn't even regarded as racism. You know, they say things over here which... If it happened in any other country, you know, there'd be an absolute outcry. But because it's here, there's kind of get away with it. And uh, I saw the Band of Brothers TV series, so I thought... And it was my wife who said, you know, get off your capacious derriere and <laughs> go... Words to that effect, Hannah. And go and find uh, go and find this woman. And I said, well, I want to. I really do want to. And so I started the hunt for uh, Augusta. I had no idea if she was still alive. I had no idea if she was real because, you know, myths and legends, it's 70 odd, it was 60 odd years ago, 65 years ago when I started. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be great if a black woman would get attention in this country? 
I said, I'm going to give them a hero. I'm going to give you a hero to my wife, someone you can be proud of. And she is proud of it. And all, you know, uh, the people I've spoken to who have managed to get to see the documentary are proud of this lady. But for some inexplicable reason, the VRT, RTBF and all the other major TV channels won't uh, won't touch it. And I think it's because I found her. But at the time, I mean, in all honesty, there wasn't a great deal of a great number of Belgian war heroes to choose from. No disrespect to them, of course, but she was unique. She was absolutely unique and I needed to know more. And it started off, you know, research starts off as an investigation and it kind of escalates to a compulsion before you even know it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I became quite OCD about this uh, to a point of distraction. So I was two years on her case and I did finally find her. But yeah, That's incredible because you, you're right in Band of Brothers. I mean, she's, she's called Anna, so that's not her, her correct name. And yeah. we are left in limbo. We don't know whether she survived the war or she didn't because she's not mentioned. Bombs that killed Renee, mm-hmm. the, the, the other nurse mentioned, she was there, wasn't she? But Absolutely. she survived it. Band of Brothers, it's like most popular media, we tend to take it for granted that, oh, then it must be right, it's on TV. And it wasn't. Um, because for a start, Renee Le Maire, the, the white angel of Bastogne, she never had any contact with the 101st Airborne, who were the subject matter of Band of Brothers. Augusta did. Now, the place where they set up shop was on the Rue Neuf-Chateau in Bastogne, and it was a, a former kind of superette little grocery store. And um, Augusta was actually next door drinking a glass of champagne with Jack Pryor, who was her guardian angel, as a sergeant, chief sergeant from the 10th Armour Division. And a 500-pound bomb dropped straight onto the facility, the aid facility, and it blew Augusta through a plate glass window. She hit the wall, she slumps down to the floor, and Jack Pryor's knocked off his feet. They were just having a glass of champagne, and uh, it must have been pretty powerful stuff. She got up, you know, as the song says, pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and start all over again. And that's precisely what she did. And so the aid station was destroyed, so she followed Jack. They had a very powerful, powerful relationship, these two. And that attracted me even more that it was a white surgeon at a time when there was still unofficially, there was still segregation in the United States Army at the time. And he befriended Augusta purely because of the fact that he knew that she was a great nurse. You see, Augusta Chewy, she was a hands-on nurse, blood and guts. Renee Le Maire was more the hold your hand and sweet, uh, smile sweetly, you know, but she was white. And she was a great nurse too, but she was um, not really the blood and guts type. And But the, the GIs, of course, you know, a lot of these 101st guys came from south of the Mason-Dixon line in America. So mm. they were obviously racist. Uh, it was, you know, uh, an institutionalized racism. Of course, Jim Crow laws still applied, not officially, but officially a black nurse could not treat a white patient. But Augusta Shuey said, well, I'm a volunteer here. I don't have to be here. And Jack gave the patients two very good choices. He said, look, either she treats you or you die, asshole. (laughs) 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 You know, death is a great leveler, Hannah. Uh, That got rid of a lot of racism, but he watched her back. You know, 
they'd only been in the aid station three days before the bomb dropped. So Augusta, she, well, Renee died after the three days. She was blown completely in half, dear lady, God rest her soul. But Augusta, she survived the blast, and then she worked until the 17th of January, but she was damaged. Yeah. She went out to the field a few times with Jack, volunteered to retrieve soldiers from the, the actual battlefield. And so traumatized was she by this, of course, she gets a kind of PTSD, which is uh, selective mutism. The thing you can equate it to is if you've been in a car accident, I've been in plenty, but uh, I'm, if I'm watching a, an advertisement about cars or watching Top Gear, I, I do tend to flinch a little bit sometimes when they're speeding. And it's the kind of thing that I'll go quiet then. Well, you've got to take that and multiply it by 10,000. Augusta had some very traumatic experiences. Bastogne was a city under siege mm. and uh, they were being bombarded constantly for that time. And during which time, of course, you know, she doesn't have the facilities to wash, to change. She's wearing an, uh, a cut down US Army uniform, retrieving bodies from the battlefield, retrieving wounded. And she did a phenomenal job, but she kept it all to herself. Now, thankfully, Jack Pryor had kept a diary of everything and I was touring the United States with my co-author who still is uh, Mike Collins and Mike said hey let's go to our album my alma mater in uh, Albany upstate New York I said yeah that'd be a great place to start you know before we go to West Point and do the rest and so we went up to Siena College and while we're there uh, a hairy guy walked into the Aula building. Mm -hmm. looked a bit like Grizzly Adams, you know, and he was carrying this huge box. And he walked right up to the lectern where I'm standing. And I thought, oh, Christ, you know, this could be a bomb or something in there. I don't know what it is. Because we're not that long after 9-11. And uh, he looked at me and he winked. I thought, that's even more suspicious. When the lecture was over, he came to me and he said, Martin, he said, my name's um, Jeff Pryor. I said, Jeff Pryor. I said, are you the son of Jack Pryor, John Pryor, who worked at his station? He said, yeah. And I've got all his diaries and letters to Augusta here. Wow. And you know, my first consideration was, thank God I'm not flying with Ryanair. She <laughs> <laughs> weighed about 12 kilos, this thing. And <laughs> I struggled back to Belgium with it after the tour. Um, we picked it up in, at JFK after the tour. And uh, I started reading through this stuff. I thought, oh, my God. It's true. And then I, I said to Mike, who's also a better researcher than Sherlock Holmes, I said, get yourself down to the National Archives in D.C. and can you check out this story? I want to be 100% that this is true, what happened. And so he did. And he said, Martin, it, it's, it all checks out, man. She was there. She did this. She did that. I said, wow, that's amazing. First of all, letter to the King of Belgium. And then um, I started a petition. And two years down the road, the king writes back to me and said, you know, how did we miss this dear lady? And precisely, I said, well, I'm glad you replied because I was considering changing myself to the palace gates. <laughs> it had occurred to me. Yeah. And um, she, of course, is still alive at this point. She is still alive at that point, yeah. yeah. And she's, you know, she was happily oblivious to everything. Um, I mean, it took nine months to actually get her to talk about her experiences. Well, that was going to be my next question, was how mm. keen was she to talk when you, you first met her? Not at all. 
uh, she wouldn't talk about it. The thing is, what she didn't know is that uh, I, I work with autistic kids. I uh, have worked with autistic kids. My own son is. And so I'm very, very patient. And so I used to go there twice, sometimes three times a week, and just sit with her. And she enjoyed the company, and she was pleasant. And the first thing she said to me when I went into her room, when I finally tracked her down, after God knows how long, she said, uh, prior, prior. I said, uh, I'm sorry, uh, prior, oh, prior. She's saying prior. That's Jack Pryor. I said, no, I'm, I'm not Jack Pryor. I said, but I know who he is, and he wrote a lot about you. And then she settled back onto her bed, and uh, she said, who are you? You know, we talked a little bit. But as soon as I mentioned the word bastard, she clammed up. Right. She shut down. It was really like turning off a switch. And this went on for months on end. So, I mean, she's a nurse. So she used to discuss how rubbish the staff were at the care home, how bad the food was, <laughs> and, and just bas- basically anything. And, and if I even broached the subject, she would deflect it. She was very, very, a very intelligent woman. And then one day, she was also deeply religious. One day I'm leaving her uh, a little room. And I used to bring her these chocolates, 70% proof. Had to be seventy percent cocoa. Or she would throw it at me. <laughs> no, what she would do is, uh, her husband was a diabetic who died because of, and I'm also diabetic, but he died because of complications from diabetes. And what she used to do was, if I brought the wrong stuff, she said, "Do you want chocolate?" And she used to be very subtle about that. But anyway, <laughs> one morning she's saying her prayers as as she always did, and um, I'm just getting ready to go home. And she said, "You know, God bless." Uh, Jack Pryor, uh, God bless Renee LaMare, God bless Troublemaker over there. That was me. And I didn't want to interrupt her. I waited until she finished. And I said, Augusta, you told me you didn't know Renee LaMare yesterday. Ah, yeah, she said. I knew Renee, Magritte, Giselle. They were three sisters, you know. And all of a sudden, she begins to talk about it. So after nine months of being rather persistent, she begins to open up. And the following visit, I brought a camera with me, a little video camera, and I filmed it. I thought, you know, if people don't believe this, I'm going to film this and I'm going to put it online and then they can see. Because there are, you know, there are people here, they're like Holocaust deniers, you know, they say, oh, no, it didn't happen, she wasn't there, and we've got all the evidence yeah. that proves that she was there. And so I wrote a, a book about my uh, (laughs) quest, that's a big word, called Searching for Augusta. And um, that became very, very popular in the United States. And it was made into a paperback, and then it came to the attention of a a film production company, and they they made the the documentary. Um, But we kind of adopted her. You know, uh, my wife used to go with me sometimes, my son went with me. You know, she kind of warmed her way into our hearts and we, we really did adopt this woman. Mm. And she was so sweet, so smart and so incredibly witty, so sharp. And, you know, the catharsis for her was, I think, the same for me because when she began to speak about her experiences, I felt the weight being lifted too, you know, after all the years of... Uh, finding her and, you know, um, getting her to speak. But there was no way she could be coerced. You couldn't say, Augusta, come on now. 
you know, stop messing about to talk. You know, she wouldn't. If she said no, it was no, and that was final. And I love that. Mm. I love that about her. She was assertive. And I remember she said that, I said, why did you choose nursing? She said, well, I actually want to be a teacher, like Mama Caroline, who was adopted mother. Uh, but she couldn't be a teacher because black teachers were not allowed to teach white children. It was mm. as simple as that. So she said, I chose nursing. I said, well, why did you go for nursing? She says, it was the only profession where a black woman could berate a white man and not getting in trouble for it. <laughs> and I thought that was gorgeous. Yeah. So, episode seven on its way, I keep telling you, it's the best episode. Keep telling you. <sighs> yeah, well, you, you keep warning me as well. It's, it's, it's going to be brutal, isn't it? Are you braced for the horror? I am in the brace position. Have you seen what the name is of this episode yet? It's called yeah. The Breaking Point. Right. Not in a good way. <laughs> is there a good way? <laughs> You've been listening to What Are You Making Me Watch? which is written, produced and edited by Hannah Dunleavy and Paul Kirkley. Our theme tune, Silver and Gold, is from Audio Hub. You can follow us on Twitter at MakeMeWatchPod or you can follow Paul where he is at P.R. Kirkley. The rest of the time, he can be found on the pages of Waitrose Weekend, Classic Pop and Doctor Who magazine, among many other things. Among several other things. He's also written two books about Doctor Who. What are they called, mate? They're called um, Space Helmet for a Cow 1 and Space Helmet for a Cow 2. <laughs> two, two space, two cow. <laughs> yeah, two helmets. <laughs> and you can find hannah on twitter at that dunleavy or in her day job talking about women's rights and a lot more besides at the standard issue podcast thanks for listening